Hello, everyone. Robert Vaughn of Just Right Media here. In this episode of Left, Right, and Center, we are treated with the added bonus of Bob Metz sitting in for Jim Chapman to host the Jim Chapman News Hour, followed by the regular Left, Right, and Center with Jeff Schlemmer. Unfortunately, the first minute or so of the Jim Chapman News Hour is lost. However, we hope you'd enjoy the show just the same. Further education, and I think. Uh Again, here we have our future generations already getting on the gravy train of government spending when, in fact, there are simpler solutions to getting their education dollars into the school systems. But uh, that, too, is not exactly the subject I want to get into today. Actually, what I want to do today is segue into something Jim started talking about yesterday morning, for those of you who were uh, listening into the show. Um, on Tuesday's show, yesterday, Jim expressed his growing frustration with the issue of global warming and all but threatened to never discuss the show the, the, the issue on his show anymore. He wasn't going to discuss it anymore. He said people who believe the earth is flat are entitled to their belief even though it contradicts the facts. And I guess because the issue of global warming has become so much like a religion, Jim argued, um, as with his policy of not discussing religion on his show, because you can't change people's minds, he says, uh, he might just have to extend this policy to global warming. So on the long shot that Jim's serious about extending his no-talk policy to this issue, I don't think he is, but, you know, I could be wrong. But I'm going to take this opportunity to take one last kick at the can, just in case I don't get another chance on left, right, and center in the future. I've been talking a lot about this issue lately. I've been doing some talk shows in Toronto, television, radio. Uh, global warming comes up constantly, and I cannot see... Uh, anyone trying to avoid this subject in the future, particularly since all parties generally are trying to take on the issue. Um, I do sympathize with Jim's frustration. You know, as 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 H.L. Uh, Mencken once said, the believing mind is eternally impervious to evidence. It rejects all overt evidence as wicked. And that's pretty true about the environmental movement, too. There, there There's two sides of this. I've been doing some research on it. And it's not as confusing as a lot of people think it should be. There's actually a science side and there's a religion side. And that's unfortunately how the issue has divided itself. You know, look at the word environmentalism. You know, it's a state of mind. It's not a science. And hence the mental and the ism. You know, isms and schisms, as Bob Marley used to say. You know, all isms are about beliefs, about values. And the problem is, though, that the values are not often revealed by what the name of the ism is. You can say, for example, liberalism is not liberal. Conservatism is not conservative. Uh, environmentalism is not really about the environment as such. But, you know, in contrast to the idea that, uh, you know, Jim believing that people who believe the earth is flat aren't really of a harm to anybody and such ideas are harmless, um, I think false beliefs are harmful, particularly when its believers turn their belief into a crusade and try to get the rest of us to join that crusade. And if we don't, we are the evil one, the, the Satan of the, of the new uh, morality of climate change. So, you know, the current whole climate change crusade is packaged sort of in an intellectually dishonest garb, mixing other causes and distractions into its movement, which really have nothing to do either with the issue of carbon dioxide, CO2, or of global warming. Uh, January 30th, interesting col column came to my attention, written by uh, Richard Gwynn. I'm going to, I just boiled it down here to about three or four sentences. 
And uh, it says a lot about the whole global warming issue. And this is coming from a generally left-wing columnist. And here's what he had to say. Uh, quote, More Canadians now care more about global warming than they do about health care. Let's consider the question of why, quite suddenly, Canadians should overwhelmingly view global warming as an issue that must be dealt with right away. After all, Canadians account for less than 2% of the globe's greenhouse gases. Why are we so stirred up about global warming? There's an X factor at work which has nothing whatsoever to do with global warming itself. People, I believe, are looking for some grand ennobling cause, and we've run out of these. Devoting ourselves to individualism, our personal needs and wants, is never enough. Combating global warming is the ultimate collective cause. It's about doing good, so remote from their personal interests, unlike health care. Well, what, a, what an amazing admission, really, to, you know, to actually come out and say that the thing is all about the ultimate collective cause. It's pushing socialism. What we're seeing here is red turning green. You know, it's the new red-green show. Uh, it's the watermelon movement, green on the outside, red on the inside. You know, I remember also when socialized medicine uh, was also a do-gooder issue because we were theoretically doing something for those who could not help themselves, although it's now come out to be, uh, you know, come full circle and become about what we can do for ourselves. So join me, if you will, as I attempt to cut into this uh, green watermelon movement, the new religion of what Richard Gwynn calls the ultimate collective cause, and see if we can take a bite out of its very red core, you know, get into this uh, red-green thing. Um, I was listening to the radio, when was this, last week on, on the first of the month, I think it was, and I heard the announcer on the station talking about the conference in Paris. You've all heard about that. It's been all over the place for the last few days. And uh, here's how the story starts. It starts with dozens of scientists and bureaucrats in Paris have agreed that global warming is caused by humans, uh, says, the, says the, uh, the radio, radio announcer, and that's about 7.30 in the morning, right? About an hour later, I'm listening to the same guy, and he says, well, there can be no question about global warming and its causes. And half an hour later, it's undebatable. And by 10 a.m., the announcer concluded that it was unequivocal. And we hear Federal Environment Minister John Baird making it clear that individuals, policymakers, and governments need to accept responsibility for global warming. Well, watch out, folks, when they tell you you need to re accept responsibility. That means money coming out of your pockets, but what are you going to get for it? You know, the hysteria of the past week or weekend on this issue is very reminiscent of Y2K. Um, you know, when a lot of well-educated and normally rational people applied their linear thinking to a, its inevitable logical conclusion, uh, that when the calendar turned from 1999 to 2000, everything dependent on a computer system would grind to a halt. It was perfectly logical given its, its assumptions, and that's the problem. You can start with an assumption and go with it, be perfectly logical along the way, and still be wrong if the assumption is wrong. And so, too, I think it is, is with global warming. Um, global warming, what does it mean? It seems to be this new speak word that, that is really being used to indoctrinate true believers into buying this package deal, uh, tying a statistical, actual, factual increase in the world's temperature, which has been going on for some 10,000 years now. We know this. This is not, this is not news. But with the idea of selling and buying pollution tax credits, whatever that might mean, and of course of increased rationing and higher prices on a global scale. So 
is, is this movement a religion or is it about science? Uh, here's why I think it's becoming more of a religion than science. We'll get back a little bit to the science later, but here are some of the trends we see with the way this issue is being conducted right now. Uh, first of all, the, this religion of global warming demands that one regards an increase in carbon dioxide as a bad thing and not as a good thing. And right even on that point, there's a lot of people who disagree with that. A lot of people are arguing that an increase in carbon dioxide would lead to a greening of the earth. We'd have more life, more bios, biomatter, more materials to build with. Trees would do better. And by the way, trees soak up oxygen more than any other thing, or, or sorry, carbon dioxide more than any other uh, living thing we know of on the planet. Um, the religion of global warming also regards, ironically, the less polluting Western nations as the culprits and the poor polluting rest of the world as complete innocence in this. It ignores all evidence contributing to weather warming that is not caused uh, or based on carbon dioxide. And very unscientifically and very religiously, the global warming cult denies uh, any sort of rational debate on the issue and having allowed what we see as dozens of scientists and bureaucrats to close the door to debate on, on for example, the 17,000-plus scientists only who signed the Oregon Accord against Kyoto. You don't hear too much about these 17,000 scientists. Uh, you hear a lot of people saying, well, there's only one or two kooks out there saying something different, but it's just not true. And the scale on which... This propaganda is occurring right now is quite frightening. I, it, it, it puts one at ill ease when you think that we're supposed to be living in a well-educated, uh, modern society where people can find information and draw their own conclusions. But apparently not enough people know enough about the science itself to determine anything on that basis, so they go to the second best thing. They go to how they feel about it, how, what they think is the truth based on their feelings and what the people around them are saying. Um, and most alarmingly to me is that no one in the whole global warming movement is suggesting planting trees, which is the single most effective people, uh, thing that people themselves can do to help soak up carbon dioxide, assuming you want to do that in the first place. So, uh, you know, but there's no money or power in tree planting, so it's outside the traditional political approach to an issue. Why plant a tree? There's no money in it, and, and that's really what the whole Kyoto issue is all about. I want to refer to uh, an article that actually was published uh, even by myself back in or, sorry, 2004, but it was orig originally written in 2002 uh, by Professor Richard Hummel, Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto, and he, he, uh, chemical engineering was his field. And he had uh, studied the whole Kyoto issue very, very carefully. And uh, interestingly enough, and this was written back in 2002, um, he, he defines what the whole IPCC is, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is one of uh, three sets of panels that have actually came up with the conclusion of uh, everything they're saying, which you're hearing this past week. And the IPCC is largely a, is scientific at the bottom, says Professor Hummel, and political at the top, so that even before the accord is ratified, billions of dollars were were flowing probably more than a billion dollars a year for a decade from those who pay to those who receive. And implementation of Kyoto will increase this flow of money, and that's what it's all about, folks. It's about money and people getting grants to study things that they can come out and alarm you with. And that's pretty well what the whole 
environmental part of Kyoto is. It's not the environment that they're out to protect. There's something else they're really after. And I think that's just basically going after uh, production, after the whole capitalist system. And I, I got some proof on this that I'd like to get to a little bit later. But um, Dr. Hummel tells us that the, the, the 30 or so page summary for policymakers that they made at the time from the uh, IPCC requires consensus, but, not a, but only among governments, not among scientists. And this is important to realize. The consensus we keep hearing about is not among scientists. It is among government officials. Uh, I'll carry on with this. Uh, it's time for a break right now, and we'll be back with more. Hi, it's uh, the Jim Chapman News Hour. I'm Bob Metz again, sitting in for G Jim Chapman today, who's out of town, but will be back tomorrow. Uh, we were talking about uh, the whole global warming issue, which uh, hopefully Jim is not going to ban from his show in the near future. But uh, it's an issue that won't go away. It's going to be part of the next provincial election, the next federal election, and perhaps many elections in the, in the near future. I was uh, sitting at home this weekend actually writing a, an article on this subject, and uh, my working title of the article so far is, is, quote, it's your fault, so shut up and die already, because that's pretty much what Kyoto is telling us. You know, it's all our fault. Uh, we shouldn't complain. We shouldn't, you know, say anything opposed to, to anything that they're saying at Kyoto, and we should just sit back and take it. And while I'm sitting there writing this article on my computer in my study, I, I have uh, a small TV set sitting beside me to the left. And generally when I'm trying to concentrate on my article, I turn the TV down and I leave it on the weather channel, which is a handy place to leave it because you can, you know, you see the time and date, you see the temperature. And by the way, uh, February 4th happened to have been the coldest February 4th on record, which is just a little irony to add to this, to this whole scenario. But who should I see when I turn my face over to the Weather Channel? And there is none other than David Suzuki, who has also timed his campaign, at, of course, at the same time as the whole Paris conference and everything. And he's being interviewed by Chris St. Clair, who's, who's a weather forecaster, who I'm quite used to, see him quite often, and saying some absolutely outrageous and unscientific things. I've I, I got to tell you, folks, I think David Suzuki's doing this issue great harm uh, he's not being the scientist on this, and I don't even think he's pretending to be. Um, it's just interesting. I, I, so what I did was, because, because the uh, Weather Channel was there, I clicked on my VCR, I taped uh, what David Suzuki had to say, and I actually transcribed it because I'm going to use parts of it in my article. And it's just amazing what he is telling us. Uh, first of all, he's not saying much about the science at all. In fact, uh, he talks about, this is interesting. Let me quote him here. This is something I took right off of the whole uh, um, the interview he had with Chris St. Clair on the Weather Channel. And uh, Chris is asking, well, what, what's the evidence? What's the evidence? What do we have us? Well, he says, uh, says, <laughs> says David Suzuki, no scientific paper goes. He says, well, the Inuit people in the Arctic are telling us. He says, these are people who are outside because they know the environment. They tell us the temperature's changing because the permafrost is melting. They're seeing, of course, that the ice is clearing much sooner than expected in the spring. The ice is thinner. There are polar bears who depend on the ice who go out and hunt, seals who need the ice cover, and they're being impacted. I don't know in what way. He doesn't say impacted in what way. But he says the polar bears are starving, which doesn't make sense if the seals are right there exposed to them and there's plenty of food. He says they're seeing animals and plants that they've never seen before. In which children have se never seen a dragonfly, says David Suzuki. And when a dragonfly comes by, apparently they're terrified. They run into their houses. Uh, 
They're terrified by these big insects. They've never seen salmon in the rivers before. So the Inuit are telling us it's happening, says David Suzuki. Now, that's just observational, folks. That's not very scientific at all. In fact, it doesn't tell you anything except what we already all agree on, that the Earth is warming. It's not saying why, who's doing it, or anything like that. Um, so to go further, Suzuki puts his foot even deeper in his mouth, and he says, uh, you know, all the signs are coming at us from nature. And this is a quote, you don't have to listen to scientists or read scientific papers. In fact, I bet you they want you to avoid doing that as much as possible. But, but says David, if you're an avid outdoors person, and let's say you're a bird watcher, bird watchers have told us now over the last 50 years that birds are coming back and migrating north in the spring at least a week, and in some cases two weeks sooner than normal. Now, birds don't listen to scientists or Greenpeace or anything. They just do what their natural cycles are part of. So, you know, and you can hear what David's getting at. He just keeps repeating, the nature is telling us this, the nature is telling us that. Uh, and basically, what is nature telling us? It's not telling us a thing. It's telling us that uh, if we look around, things are getting warmer. And why are things getting warmer? Well, there are a lot of reasons. If you want to know what the absolute reasons are, there, there are, and you really want the science of it, from everything I've read, there are basically three things that affect the weather dramatically. And the first one is the sun. The second one is the oceans. And the third one is how, my, how many trees and, and forests we have on the planet. Those are the three major contributors to global warming, cooling, changes in the weather, anything like that. And whether 100,000 people believe it or five people believe it doesn't make any difference. Because, you know, the number of adherence to a point of view does not constitute scientific truth. Um, equals MC squared regardless of how many people agree or disagree. I mean, it's a relationship that has been repeatedly demonstrated in nature. It's a fact that energy equals mass times the constant speed of light squared, no matter how you choose to express it or whether you choose to believe it or not. That relationship is a fact of nature, but it would never be discovered just by looking at nature itself. You have to have a human mind that can observe what's going on in nature and discover that relationship and then test it to see if it is consistent, if it works every time. And so far, certainly with that case, we have. But historically, if you look back at the history of science, uh, every fact of nature was discovered by individuals and never by consensus and meetings and political parties and things like that. In fact, most in most cases, such individuals met uh, extreme resistance from every consensus-based group around them. Uh, could be church, could be state, anyone who had had an interest in denying the facts of nature because in doing that you can control certain elements of humanity. And I have to tell you, I've been in politics for 20 years and the lust for power today is no different than it was a century ago, uh, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago. But what is has changed in the last hundred years or two uh, is not the nature of mankind, but for the first time in history, we had a significant degree of political freedom, something that was unheard of before. And this brief period of history, like it's a historical blink, uh, resulted from in, in its natural consequence of scientific discovery and scientific knowledge. Those two things in turn led to industrialized production, which in turn led to a higher standard of living ever experienced by human beings at any other time in history. 
So, you know, everything you've got today that you enjoy and you take for granted as part of your environment, uh, televisions, computers, cars, spaceships, these are true miracles in terms of the world only a hundred years ago. Nobody, you, you mentioned those things to anybody, you were a nut bar, you know, you were just dreaming. Uh, they didn't even think in terms of science fiction then. And yet, you know, these things all exist today, and most people expect, ex or accept them, rather, as part of their daily and routine environment. And so much so that often I think that people are no longer aware of what is natural and what is man-made or what the significant difference is between the two. And we almost think that the technology on which we will have to rely to do anything about the environment at any time uh, is somehow just came to us down from, from the heavens and was given to us, when, of course, that's not true. Francis Bacon, of course, uh, his famous quote, nature to be commanded must be obeyed, is very true. And it's surprising to hear how many people really believe that things like cars, planes, trains, buildings, skyscrapers, etc., are, uh, quote, unnatural, end quote. But let's face it, that's not true. If the principles, for example, that make an internal combustion engine were not in accordance with the principles of nature, I guarantee you, your car would never start when you turn the key in the morning, never mind the cold weather. But, you know, it's precisely because the principles of nature were obeyed that your car works in the first place. It's not magic. It is natural. What is unnatural in the, quote, unnatural in the whole system is, is, is the human mind, and that's what people really regard as, as unnatural that we can take energy and direct it to a purposeful action is the result of human ingenuity as opposed to the blind and chaotic destruction you get when nature releases, releases energy through things like volcanoes, forest fires, tornadoes, tidal waves, hurricanes, and all those un other wonderful releases of energy. Wouldn't it be great if we could just tap into all of those and prevent the disasters and channel that energy into purposeful action? But that's not the way the world's built. Uh, you know, nature, it's told that nature provides us, you know, with things, but that's really not true. Nature will not provide you with anything. You have to get up off your butt and get it yourself. That's the way it's done. It's all done by effort. And that's that's the whole issue. You know, when people, uh, what people really mean, I think, when they say that such things are unnatural is that they were created by people uh, through the process of creation using your mind and your knowledge and production using your effort and your body. And um, I think this belief assumes that man is unnatural uh, precisely because he has the ability to both obey and command nature. Animals and plants neither obey nor command nature because according to this line of thinking they are of course part of nature and, and we are not in that sense. We are alien according to the scientific mystics and we are supernatural according to religious mystics and together they make for a good mix in the whole environmental case. So that's uh, you know the whole the whole issue of what we can do about global warming uh, in a real sense. Forget about the politics for a while. Uh, I think we really do not understand how important trees are, for example, in the um, in the whole ecology and the whole climate of the planet. 
Uh, going back to Dr. Hummel's ar- article, Kyoto or else, which, by the way, anyone can access. The article is on uh, freedomparty.org uh, website. Just use the search engine there and look up Dr. Hummel, H-U-M-M-E-L, or Kyoto, and you will find it. It's an extremely well-researched article, uh, published it a few years ago, and every time I look back upon this article, I think this thing has summarized the whole Kyoto issue in uh, four to six pages that you would just never find in the thousands of pages of the detail and technicalities that people throw at you, partially to confuse you. Um, Dr. Hummel asks a very interesting question. Which is more important to the weather and climate, uh, trees or carbon dioxide? And, you know, his answer isn't as clear as you might want to think, but it depends on whether you want to measure temperature or rain, and it depends on the level of CO2. And... uh, he tells us that the first 100 uh, parts per million of CO2 is the most effective at blocking radiation and its wavelengths. Uh, 350 parts per million gives a clear sky warming. Uh, 600 parts per million would increase it by only 5%. And so what c- can trees do more? Well, he says the tree is very well designed for the function of soaking up CO2. It grows tall to access sunlight. The roots, the thin living part under the bark and leaves, uh, you know, efficiently pump water and evaporate it. 97% of the sun's energy beamed down on a 50-year-old New England hardwood forest is dissipated through evaporation and heating. Of the 2.6% of the sun's energy biologically captured by the trees, 55% is lost to respiration and 33% goes into leaves that will eventually fall off the tree. Wood, bark, and roots use 12% of the 2.6% captured energy to accumulate CO2. And what's interesting is he says the energy ratio for water pumped and evaporated CO2 captured is, get this, 152 to 1. Uh, That's just absolutely incredible. And and contrary to a lot of uh, popular opinion, young forests do better than old forests. And uh, most of the forests in Canada and the U.S. are old. You know, activists are always telling us that uh, it's the old forests that absorb the CO2. In fact, that's completely wrong. Um, It's the younger ones that do. uh, Dr. Hummel points out that dead and rotting trees feed insects and microbes that it can't overcome the defensive poisons of live trees. Um, You know, pretty much he's saying basically the trees have a more important role than CO2 for both man and weather. Uh, The trees use most of their solar energy to pump and evaporate water to make rain. Agriculture began in the Fertile Crescent while forests were abundant. Aristotle noticed how um, deforestation dried the country of Greece. Um, The last forest uh, near, or sorry, the last forests near scenic Petra in Jordan were felled by the Turks for railroads just before World War I. 18th century scientists had trees planted to give rain to tropical isles, and 19th century hucksters exaggerated the benefits. China planted trees in Tibet and got a 30% increase in rainfall. It's Mongolia's turn now, trees to settle the dust. Afghanistan and Haiti have been recently stripped for firewood, and women and children are stripping the Sahel of anything that burns, plants and dung, and it's people that make deserts. So, you know, if we plant some of these trees and... And soak up some of that carbon dioxide. Maybe they'll take some of the hot air of Kyoto with them. Time for a break. We'll be back shortly. Hello, Bob Metz back again, uh, sitting in for Jim Chapman today. Um, Jim will be returning tomorrow, a uh, reg- regularly scheduled time. It's uh, We're halfway through the hour now. I'm in, uh, joined again by uh, Jeff Schlemmer, uh, the other half of our 
or the other third of our left, right, and center team. It's only left and right today. Yeah. Have you been listening to any of the stuff I've been saying so far, Jeff? Uh, I heard a bit of it on yeah. the way up, yeah. Uh, you got any thoughts of your own on it? or, or where, where do you actually sit on this? Are you like pro-Kyoto or... Yes, I guess so, and uh, I think that uh, the first thing is that I haven't done anything like the amount of reading on it that you've done, but I, I was noticing yesterday in the news that it appears that even even the Bush government is now acknowledging that uh, there's a problem with uh, with global warming, and uh, I think, boy, those guys fought long and hard uh, against this. I remember seeing uh, Ari Fleischer, who was the uh, president's um, uh, spokesman at the time, uh, when he was asked about whether people should try to uh, cut back on on uh, driving SUVs and alter their lifestyle to try to reduce greenhouse, ga- greenhouse gas and so on. And he said that's a, a big no. And uh, so they've they've come around on it now. And I guess, again... Uh, you really think the government's interested in the environment? You think it has another agenda? Uh, well, I guess I think that in this case, these are folks who would mar- far rather not be interested in the environment and would love to be able to say, uh, don't worry about it, there's no problem. I guess part of the problem I always have is that every disaster movie I've ever seen starts off with somebody saying, don't worry about it, everything's fine. In fact, it's usually government who's telling us that. So if government are actually now saying, eh, it might be a problem here we should start looking into, uh, I think, holy cow, if they're on board, we're already halfway into the movie. <laughs> well, you know how I'm how I look at it. I, I can understand why governments are all of all parties clamoring on board because uh, whether something is true or not doesn't seem to be the motivating factor. Facts basically don't affect politics that much. Religion does too, and if people believe something, whether it's true or not, and they can constitute a majority, I think governments have to listen to them if they want those people's votes. And then on the other side of the coin, if you've got this money running through government hands, that they get to hand out to bureaucrats and other people who can share their opinion and spread the word around, uh, to me that's an incredibly um, tempting uh, stick or sorry carrot to have in front of you. I, I, but I don't see any motivation of doing anything for the environment as such. I can see this benefiting governments and maybe getting somebody elected. But uh, how are they ever going to prove any kind of result? I haven't heard a thing out of Kyoto that that promises us anything other than bad times ahead, not because of the climate, because of what they're going to do to us, well, because I guess, of their belief of what the climate's Yeah, doing. And, and at root, this is, you're right in the sense that uh, this is an issue you take on faith to a fair extent, in the sense that uh, there, are, there are, like many things, uh, we, again, kind of listen to uh, what everybody's saying and absorb a fraction of it, and uh, and ultimately we leap one way or the other. Sometimes we change our mind, but, you know, realistically, I'm, I'm not an expert in this stuff, and on the one hand, I think it's healthy for us to question what experts say about things, and it's healthy to have a debate about things. On the other hand, I recognize that there are some there, there are some issues, lots of issues, that uh, I'm just not qualified to have an opinion on in the sense that if somebody asked me, you know, uh, how, to, uh, how to put a spaceship into the air, I would have to defer to the, to the experts on that. And, and if they said, well, you do it in this way that seems weird to me, I'd have to say, well, you're the experts. I really don't know. If, if somebody talked about some new kind of surgery and said this is what we're going to do uh, and it seemed uh, counterintuitive to me, again, I would have to say, well, you went to school all those years. You know, you've got all the experience. You must know something about it. Um, and, and we'd take those things on faith. But that's not to say that uh, there aren't all kinds of interests, you're right, that are involved and, and have all kinds of other reasons why they want us to believe one thing or another. What, what I'm going to be very interested in is that uh, we now seem to have 
um, public interest in this issue, but we haven't really started to have to pay for it, I don't think. And when the, when uh, people are told suddenly, okay, your taxes are going to go up by uh, you know several thousand dollars a year, or you can't drive an SUV anymore, you're going to have to drive a subcompact or whatever it's going to be. There's going to be you know limited electricity. Where it really starts to affect our lifestyle will be when we find out how committed people are to this issue. And and I think that it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm behind this, that, and the other thing. But when the rubber hits the road, are you really going to change your life because of it? And that that I don't know. Well. I don't think people will. I don't think they have to, not even to do things for the environment. I think that's part of how a marketplace already works. It's not in the interest of any business, for example, to waste energy. It, it costs them money, right? So every anybody who's in business wants to create the most production for the least effort. I mean, that that's a good thing. And why they think that business, you know, is particularly responsible since business makes everything that we eat, that we, we live in our homes, the cars we drive. Our cars are cleaner today than they ever have been. But there's a lot uh, more of them, though. Now, that's an issue. Paul, I mean, population is not something... But, but then again, you look at the freer countries, the more capitalist countries, they have the lower populations. They have the cleaner climates. And, uh, you know, I was listening also to David Suzuki about Kyoto, here you know here's his here's what he actually had to say about Kyoto and I thought this was a little bit of a hoot uh, Chris St. Clair in the weather station says to him he says is Kyoto a good thing or a bad thing and Suzuki avoids the answer he says Kyoto's just the beginning he says and talks about how he was in Kyoto in 97 when uh, when all the negotiations were taking place right and he's talking about all the different parties that showed up in Kyoto and he said uh, uh, where did he put it here he said um Oh, that uh, everyone was there, the auto industry, the oil industry, Alberta was there. And he said, all together, they were saying, no, no, it's not happening. We don't have to do anything. When, in fact, none of them were saying that. They were all saying, yeah, the globe is getting warmer, but the, the, the solutions in Kyoto are not what it's about. But here's how, here's how David Suzuki himself sees Kyoto. He says, he says, the idea of Kyoto is this. We in the industrialized world, the rich countries, have created the problem in the first place. We're the ones that used all this coal, oil, and gas and added too much carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So it's up to us to at least show the rest of the world that we can't keep doing that indefinitely. We're going to stop growing our emissions, and we're going to start bringing them down a little bit. But that's just the first thing. And we'll do that by the year 2012, which is an interesting year. Everyone likes that, 2012. There's an author out right now who's telling us uh, the sun is going to destroy the earth in 2012 and that the sun is the thing that's heating up uh, the planet, which holds a lot more weight, by the way, because Mars also is losing its ice caps and areas that were covered in ice before on Mars are no longer covered with ice and the moon is warmer. Uh, these are all things that have been observed and we know the sun is more active and there are people in that industry who are watching it. But nevertheless, that's one of those pieces of, of evidence that doesn't fit in with the CO2 argument. But anyways, he says, uh, once we've shown the industrialized world that we've brought it down, that'll bring China and India and Brazil and all those other countries into the, into the fold. Now, you know, he's talking about a 6% reduction below 1990 levels for Canada and 8% below 1990 levels, uh, that's of CO2 parts per million, I guess, uh, um, for Europe, and he calls them modest reductions. Um, 
Again, he, he blames us. The whole thing's about blame, blaming us uh, for all the world's pollution, when in fact he's saying China, India, and all the other countries are not responsible. Take well, a look at a satellite image of the planet and look where the grayest clouds are. They're over those countries, not ours. Yeah, well, I guess, uh, among other things, I don't know that when you say he's blaming us, I would say that he's saying that that he's including himself within us, I would think. So I would argue that he's taking responsibility for it. But I guess the, the other aspect of it is that... Uh, there. Well, among other things, uh, I was thinking last week about something Jim had said, which was that uh, when he was a kid, the uh, Thames River was more polluted than it is now. And I'm thinking, well, that that may be. And certainly in industrialized areas, that was true. The, uh, there were big smokestacks, uh, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. But there were relatively few of them. There were still large amounts of North America that were not uh, industrialized in those ways and large parts of it that were not polluted. At root, I guess, the, the most intuitive thing for me is that if I think about it, if I want to find a way to kill myself, I stick my lips on an exhaust pipe of a car, and that'll do it pretty quick. It's poison that comes out of the car. And I think, you know, how, how much can we put into the environment before it starts to poison us one way or another? Uh, and I think yeah, sooner or later, the Earth's probably going to run out of its ability to kind of wash this stuff for us. So that's the most intuitive aspect of Why it. Why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Because well, I don't. I, I've heard that people die from carbon monoxide poisoning oh. with cars. And, well, and, and of course, stuff. Car- carbon monoxide and carbon I haven't dioxide seen it. I have to tell you, things, I'm taking it on faith. Right? I'm taking it on faith, but neither of them are things we can live on or breathe, I guess. And, and I guess that's the other thing about the global warming right now is the trendy thing. It used to be CFCs, right? And uh, that was a big problem. Uh, See, the reason carbon monoxide is deadly is because it doesn't allow the, bo- the, the blood to absorb, absorb oxygen. And that's why it can be deadly in very small amounts. But we can't breathe, ca- breathe car- carbon dioxide either, I don't think. Carbon dioxide, yes. You're breathing it right now. In well, no, fact, you you're exhaling it. it. No, no, you can't live on it. That's what I mean. But when you exhale carbon dioxide, which is a very natural thing, uh, trees, for example, breathe that in. I know. That's, the, that's what they use. And guess what they exhale? They well, exhale I, I, oxygen. I remember hearing Ronald Reagan talk and, about it. And Acid rain was caused by know, trees uh, and so on. And well, you know, that's, that's part of the problem, again, is that I think that he had an agenda there at that time for saying, you know, we really don't need to worry too much about pollution because I don't want to have to tell you you're going to have to raise taxes and change your lifestyle. I'd like to be able to tell you good news so you'll keep on voting for me. Um, uh, Pollution is an entirely separate issue from CO2 and the earth warming. And I don't think it would be in the minds of most people. I think that it would be all part of the same thing. And it's, again, like it was that uh, air conditioners and But that's uh, exactly what styrofoam styrofoam makes the issue dangerous. If you mix, sprays if you were mix killing the two us, issues, aerosol sprays, you know, it was all that. And then yeah, we did change it, right? Well, what happened, I believe, is that we decided that cars, uh, all air conditioners had to switch away from Freon. They had to use non-CFC So what happened to the ozone layers? So still there? I have no idea what's no, happening, except it doesn't seem to told. be the central issue. But what did happen <laughs> were there were huge changes to the way we lived, and it happened pretty quickly, and it happened over the huge objections of a lot of people who didn't want to have to spend the money on it. And it is true, I gather, I, that I, I think all, our air conditioners are more expensive unfair. now than they used to be I because spoke, of that. I spoke to a lot of technical people on that issue, and they, they, they assured me, they said, listen, it's not about money, it's about the stupidity of it. it, it it's just not what, the, what they're telling you. And you, you get this a lot in environmental movements and people doing things. Meanwhile, um, you know, you can criticize Bush and Reagan, but they did a lot in terms of uh, reducing actual pollutant emissions because that is a legitimate government function to get the pollutants down if you can. But you can well, only do what you can. You know, and we forget a lot of the but other... But to say they did a lot, like Texas was, as I believe, uh, when George was, was the governor, it was the, the state that had the highest pollution in the United States, and I, th- I believe that under Mike Harris, Ontario surpassed Texas. But, that's, but that, what does that mean That doesn't necessarily mean that Texas... Ontario is the better. highest polluter in Canada. What does that mean to you? It means we've got the highest so population, we do something about it. and we <laughs> produce them. Look, you know... We've got a huge province. You ever been through Detroit? 
and you can see the pollution in in parts of the city there you see the smokestacks you see the these huge yards of just garbage it looks horrible right, right. Mm -hmm. and you think my god you wouldn't want the whole country to be like that well, it's not going to get like that detroit makes cars for the whole country they export them so in a, in a way what is happening is every country that's buying our cars has exported their garbage to Detroit, in the case I'm picking, for example, because the pollution is there. You have concentrated points of pollution because you have concentrated points of production. It's not spread out evenly all over the place. Mm -hmm. But the use of the good is. And you might buy a car in California or, or in Australia that was made in Detroit, but the mess and the pollution's all in Detroit of the production of the car. Well, for the production, although having said that, m more and more they are outsourced, of course. Cars are built all over the world. The, the cars built in Ingersoll have their engines built in China, for example. But uh, I, it's interesting that I think people still, ultimately have to I come back to a personal level. <laughs> Well, no, but I, I was just going to say that it strikes me that uh, people I know who are fairly conservative by nature, and I say my dad as, as an example, talks about going to the Grand Canyon and how he went there in the 50s and it was crystal clear and you could see as you know, far off into the horizon. He said he goes back there now and it's got this haze over it, kind of perpetual haze, and there's no plants for a long, long ways in any direction. But he believes that the, that the pollution is spreading. And again, that uh, it's, it, it is something that needs to be dealt with. And again, he's a pretty conservative guy. Uh, and for him it becomes a personal thing and it's interesting to me how in some respects this is uh, ironic I guess but conservation well, seems to be something that is increasingly appealing to conservatives uh, and that's something that again is a relatively new phenomenon I think uh, it's got their attention well uh, I think they're using it for the same way the liberals are it's a it's a it's a political ploy conservation doesn't mean anything conservation really means again being economical don't waste. Who in some respects, like that? although I think about things like conservation areas, for instance, in Ontario that were all set up by the by the uh, Robarts and Davis uh, conservative governments in those days, uh, and I guess it's a question of how different saving saving uh, green space, saving uh, forests, and all that stuff is compared to trying to pollute less. But I think the average person does put it all together. One and, way or another. And results in what? In supporting Kyoto? <laughs> well, I think that that is why we, you know, we, yeah, we've you know, lurched slowly along, but uh, I think that is why we have blue boxes, that there is a broad sense that we should be doing something and we may be kind of putting it off, but we all, I, th I think the, the, the critical majority now are coming around to the idea that, eh, we've got to do something. And we do recognize that we use a lot more resources than people in the third world, so, eh, you know, we kind of led the way into it. We do have to do something about leading the way out. Okay, we'll take a break right now, and we'll pick up on this on the other side. We're back. Uh, Bob Metz here sitting in for Jim Chapman, who will be back tomorrow. Uh, it's not left, right, and center, but left and right with myself and, and Jeff. Uh, we've been talking about climate change and global warming, just in case Jim cuts us off from the subject forevermore in the future, <laughs> as he was kind of threatening to do yesterday because he's getting a little frustrated with the religious patterns of this whole thing. Well, and I agree but with you that one of the one of the fr most frustrating things when you're on either side of an argument is some of your allies, because inevitably you've got people who take it way too far. And again, uh, there are naysayers who are kind of like the end is is upon us all the time types, and uh, it becomes embarrassing uh, sometimes. Sometimes I say that the the only thing more f frustrating than your opponents are your allies, because some of them are nuts. Yeah, and I think some of them feel that they have to go to that extent to get anybody to react. I mean, to even think of, think of the issues. You know, I've got a, what this, February 3rd, London Free Press, page A4 here you're looking at here. You've got a whole page on Canada's climate at high risk. Uh, focus on stabilizing emissions, PM says. 
And uh, here's the here's the kicker in the in the bottom right hand corner. Groundhog predicts early spring. Now I think that's about the level you're at here with all of the science. <laughs> Why don't we just call on the groundhog and have the groundhog predict what will happen to the world with global warming? Look at this main findings though. Uh, global warming is very likely caused by humans, and the outlook says, and I'm quoting here from the Free Press. Hotter temperatures and rises in sea level would continue for centuries, no matter how much humans control their pollution. Well, that, isn't that interesting? It doesn't matter what we do, it's going to happen. It's already a done deal. And even at the extreme end of what Kyoto says its goals are, with all its emission uh, cutbacks, the ultimate end goal, not just a little bit that David Suzuki's talking about right now, it's all going to be canceled out by China next year alone. China's starting up as many coal plants next year that will add more CO2 than Kyoto is even attempting to, well, one thing to about do China, anything I guess, about. So what is all you, this about? Why you are talk we about how, there? well, first of all, I, I bet you that there will be a lot of people who would disagree with that statement. But one thing about China, at least, is that uh, we talk about how in the, in the industrialized nations, population growth has gone down a lot, and there are some countries that are actually shrinking. I think Germany is actually losing mm -hmm. population, uh, and that there are third-world countries where there's a huge amount of growth happening, which is why there's twice as many people on the planet now as there were when I was born, but not in China. China, they came along, and didn't they say you get one kid and that's it? And, yeah, uh, well, but but you bring up a good point. Even that looks good for the future for the people that are concerned about overpopulation. All those predictions that the same uh, doomsayers were making in the 70s and 80s that by the year 2000 there wouldn't be any space left for us to stand never so came Malthusian to pass. It's a Malthusian argument, yes. Because, uh, because what they're doing, again, is taking a linear argument. If current trends continue, well, current trends never continue, never because human beings make different choices every day, and new new things are invented. All of this could be canceled out in two weeks if some guy comes out with a, a fusion engine, let's say, or a, or some form of energy that, that we haven't even thought of yet. And this has always been the pattern uh, as we've gotten more efficient, even with old energies. I understand now that even coal can be burned very cleanly in terms of the, what we're used to thinking of, of coal. Um, Interesting well, history that Dr. Hummel points out about England. He says uh, they banned coal burning for a while there. And guess what happened? All the forests were ripped down. People needed the trees for fuel. It wasn't until they went back to coal and then they got into inventing, you know, metals and steels and irons that they could reforest. And they got their forests back. So they needed the coal to save the trees. It, it What's well, interesting in a way, the other aspect of conservation that I think appeals to human nature is that I, I think about New Year's resolutions and how it's like, well, okay, I gotta, I gotta do some exercise. I gotta improve my diet. I gotta do some things that there are ways that we recognize that our lifestyles are, are not, um, are not as, as, um, say ideal as they could be or that there are ways that I look at myself and go, you know, I'm not a good person because I should work exercise, I should do these things, I should be nicer to people and so on. And I think the idea of trying to consume less kind of fits into that uh, way that we'd like to see ourselves. And I think that's one of the reasons why it has a certain appeal. Again, I don't know how far that takes us because well, I never do get around to exercising yeah. or changing my diet. But it's something that I think is a feel-good issue. And I, I was reading uh, Richard Gwynn uh, a week or two ago where he was saying that he thought the reason that the environment has come on as an issue is because we need another altruistic thing to try and I, I read in. I read his article at the yeah. at the beginning of the show. Yeah. And uh yeah, he's and he called it the ultimate uh cause for for global We're kind of know, burned out on human rights. We're burned out on the fighting communists, so it's like, yeah, we need something well, to Well, we're not good too about. much into pollution really. The reason with all of those things is most of those problems have been largely settled. What do you think about by the marketplace, so, not by do-gooders? 
you say that uh, that you would not link global warming to pollution, that they're kind of different issues. Completely different issues, and, because and what global about, warming's all about CO2. What about pollution? Like, are there problems there that we need to be dealing with? Not in the sense that, that we used to have to. I, I think pollution, first of all, if you're thinking zero pollution, that isn't going to happen. You have the complete extremists who think you can live without pollution. Well, I don't know about you, but I flush the toilet a couple times a day. I have to turn on my heat. I've got it kicking out right now because it's real cold outside. <laughs> Ontario Hydro is setting new winter records, for, not as high as the summer, but still, we need energy. Energy is life. Uh, you know, everything we do is about energy. We are a carbon-based species, and I mean, to talk about eliminating carbon and having carbon-neutral policies is, is, a, is, to me, insane. It's so anti-scientific, anti-logical. But what about uh, the idea of setback thermostats and trying to kind of get by with less... Is that, you uh, can if you want. If it makes yeah. you feel good, it doesn't make me feel good. I want to be warm and I want to be comfortable. And, I, and I'm not going to buy into... That's why the, the working title of my article was just, you know, shut up and die. Because basically that's what they want you to do. They don't want but you isn't to it, move. But isn't this the opposite? Move, They're saying we need to do something or we will die. Like no, that, they don't that's want what I would you take to, They it. don't want you to debate over the issue of... They don't want you to die either. Well, not overtly. <laughs> They're not going to say that. But aren't they you. saying, you know, unless we sort of cut back on this stuff, that our kids and grandkids and so on are going to have to deal with far worse problems than it would be for us to try to kind well, of moderate a bit today? Okay. Aren't we kind of the idea that we're way. living on our kids' kind of graves? Uh, In Canada, we want to, Suzuki says we want to cut back our emissions uh, 6% below the 1990 levels, okay? That's already uh, 16 years ago, okay? So we're going to get 6% below that as a collective. How are we going to do it? Well, that means somebody who might want to start into business now won't be allowed to because he hasn't got his license to pollute and add his pollution for whatever he's going to build. He might be the guy, the inventor who solves the whole problem but can't get into business well, because he doesn't meet some I regulations. I don't see David Suzuki saying you can't go into business. Well, uh, he won't say it, but the government will. How, you well, know, the reality, the dream is one thing, but when it comes down to legislation, why it would they say that screws with people's lives. Why would they say that GM is entitled to go on polluting as much as they want, but a non young entrepreneur can't start a new business? That, that doesn't sound like something to, uh, well, that Stephen Harper is going to say. quote, trade, trade these credits. They're going to say, well, this business can go on polluting because it contributes quote to the economy and this one here can't because we don't think mm. it's going to I think some bureaucrat I think will be Stephen Harper would have to have a, a, a huge uh, kind of uh, well he'd have to be replaced by some kind of a clone before he'd start managing the economy in that kind of way that's precisely uh, why or, I think or the ridiculous. liberals for that matter so I, I don't they, think that's gonna going to happen I thought credits were about dollars they were saying that, uh, that they're going to give Even dollars worse. to other countries because they want to them them to reduce so, uh, emissions it. it's okay if I it wasn't about you can't start a micro business that's on that's innovative in fact I I they're all about a innovation. Of, ton of carbon out in, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. If I pay enough for it, you know that's the whole approach of Kyoto. I'm going. Well, isn't that interesting? That again doesn't address the environment. It just but isn't that to try to encourage people saying it's cheaper for you to insulate your factory than to just keep buying cheap electricity and blowing it all out the door? Well, that may be true, but again, that's a self-interest at work. If I'm going to insulate my my factory or my home, as I did yesterday in my apartment, by the way, I had to insulate around my air conditioner <laughs> because a lot of the cold air was coming yeah, in, yeah. right? Yeah. I didn't have to have any legislation come to tell me to do that. I did that for the sake of my own comfort and to save my landlord a few bucks, too. But to some extent, but, because of our hydro prices, too, that have gone way up, isn't it? There's no incentive in the way the hydro prices are structured to conserve. In well, fact, sure, they cost they, a lot more than they used to. It they used to be are, dead cheap, and now it's expensive. They're set up to use because even if you use zero... Like a, a Freedom Party, for example, we use about $20 of electricity a month. 
but our bill is close oh, to I know they tacked on all kinds right? of other so things. If yeah. I can control the $20, you know, if I, if I reduce that by 2%, I'll say, oh, two bucks. Well, I'm waiting for the day when they have the... <laughs> and and I'll be uncomfortable I presume, for that two I presume bucks. they don't have the technology yet, but I gather it's way, way, way cheaper uh, to, to produce electricity in off-peak times. And I'm waiting for the time when it actually will be cheaper for me to run my dishes and my laundry and all that stuff in the middle of the night. Because uh, I get, uh, strangely enough, well, it's pe- not cheaper pe- to produce. It's well, it is because it's because the demand they've is got down unused and the demand. Go down. Yeah. Right. That's what well, it and is. it's interesting that with electricity that you can't save it. Eh? That the government exactly they can't save it. You either you you either build enough plants so that you can keep all the lights on and everything at four or five in the afternoon at peak time in the summer, or else you're going to have the brownouts and all that kind of stuff. So they've got all these generators that are basically doing nothing in the middle of the night, right? Mm-hmm. So you would think that, and I gather they do this for industrial companies that uh, they make it cheaper for them to work in the night because Again, they've got this unused capacity, but they don't do it for consumers yet. And I'm assuming it's just for technological reasons. Well, it's also for you know for for a little bit of um, rationing too, because when you got high demands in the day, and you want to shift it to the night, and you've got a limited supply, that's what you're going to have to do. And I'm afraid that that's sort of the world we're heading into is this this world of rationing and and you know lining up for things. I, I just can't see the whole thing working. It, it's just pie in the sky. The whole Kyoto thing, the whole global warming thing. I think it's it's probably this century's greatest hoax. Uh, I'm waiting for the UFOs to land next. But, I mean, if enough people believe it and they want to believe it, it's not going to change the politics of it. Well, I don't see um, how those are going to lead to rationing. The last rationing that I recall for gas was when OPEC decided that with their little monopoly they would jack prices through the roof and wouldn't give anybody any gas. And that was completely a, a business-driven decision uh, well, can to by get higher prices out of people. Yeah, but on that, isn't this all about trying to avoid having to get into rationing and, uh, and brownouts and that by sort of planning? ahead a bit well if you want to do that then you produce more you don't you don't put obstacles in the way of production you want to cr- you want to reduce obstacles from production you want to get more people producing in wider areas spread the pollution around if you don't want it concentrated in one place yeah. have, a, have a plant here and have a plant there but I don't think even those things are the answers I think largely uh, you know if you live in a free society and people's property rights are protected everyone has the protections they already need you, if somebody pollutes your property you can sue anyways I know it's an issue that's not going to go away for a while nope we'll be talking uh, for a while and, unless uh, Jim tells us we can't I, I can't see him doing that because <laughs> hey if he does that he won't be able to talk about politics for the next two years <laughs> look you're right there how are we doing there with time we're almost getting there near near the end um Jeff, any thoughts on uh, on uh, the students down there wanting cheap uh, tuitions? <laughs> well, I, I actually I mentioned it at the beginning I, of the show. As you know, I teach at the law school, and I make a point every year of telling my students that when I went to school, the tuition was six hundred bucks, and I got a student grant to pay for that. And I bought a house, put two kids into daycare and a car, a new car when I was in school. And uh, there are lots of countries that still do that. I know that I have exchanged students from France and Australia, for instance, where they don't pay tuition. And the reason they say is because they want to be technological leaders in the world, so they're going to take their best and brightest and hardworking students, invest some tuition money into them, so they'll be smarter than the Canadian kids. And so I worry about that. And uh, I think, you know, my generation, we're happy to take the free tuition, but we're not willing to pay our share of taxes so that our kids and grandkids can have the free tuition. And I, I find that a bit embarrassing, personally. Why aren't we willing to pay the tuition, you know? I'll tell you one thing. Well, if we you pay paid it. tuition directly, it would be cheaper than the taxes you spend the rest <laughs> of your life. Anyway, that's enough for today, folks, and uh, we'll be back with Jim Chapman next week. See ya. Jeff, it's been fun. If you've enjoyed this presentation, visit justrightmedia.org for more programming that's not right-wing, it's just right.